Prohibition Whiskeymentary on the Whiskey Tangent Podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Ed. And today we're going to be talking about what happened during the years between 1920 and around 1927. The Dark Ages. <laughs> and an amazing coincidence, we're actually releasing this podcast exactly 100 years to the day that the law went into effect. January 16th, 1920. But first, Ed is here to start us off by recapping part one, in which we focused on the two decades of the perfect storm of circumstances that led to prohibition itself. Right. And this was a a summation of people acting badly, drinking a lot of spirits at the time. They said the 88 gallons per American. And this led to some people indicating that maybe we shouldn't drink so much, which was probably a good idea. But like all things we do in this country, we take it to the extreme. (laughs) The Women's Christian Temperance Union. Yeah, religion got involved. And Wayne Wheeler and the Anti-Saloon League basically started to put enough pressure on. And then we had the United States Brewers Association made up of very prominent, powerful German immigrants right. that increased beer production and consumption tenfold in this country in one generation. So we said it was a perfect storm. There was the temperance movement. There was the anti-German sediment that came about because of World War One, mm-hmm. which weakened the power of the Brewers Association, which would have been an, at least a counterbalance to the temperance movement. Right. And then we discussed the fact that income tax was passed giving the government a whole new $100 billion in revenue, which would replace the money they lost by taxing liquor. So this was a perfect storm we said that came about, and there's some other issues that we mentioned, but they were the three big ones. Go back and listen to it. Yeah, the temperance (laughs) movement, the anti-German sediment, and it made them an easy target. And once again, the real Americans, and who is a real American debate that we still put up with today. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you come to this country and you work hard and you make a better life and you make the country better, why can't that be enough? Immigration and racism. Here we are again. I mean, you can go back to 1850, 1950, and I'm sure in 2050, they'll be like, oh, those people from Jupiter 3rd Moon. Yeah, the the people from Ganymede. (laughs) They don't care anything about our planet. (laughs) Why do we let them come here? Oh, they're stealing all our jobs. Stealing our jobs, the aliens. They're like, we built this country. Shh. Well, they have seven arms. They can work really hard. I'm just kidding. Robots are going to kill everybody by 2050. That's true. Episode the, six. The robot apocalypse will kill everybody. It all starts with a flushable toilet. Yes. Do your homework. <laughs> so, hey, Scott. 
back to you. <laughs> Scott's going to give us a state of whiskey in the 1920s. There you go, guy. All right, fella. Hey, hey, fellas. Uh, I just want to know why they all talk like this in the movies. Hey. I don't really know. Hey. hey, what's the big idea? Huh? Hey. Hey, fella. Hey. All right. So, um, yeah, I'm going to do the state of American whiskey in 1920 at the start of Prohibition. Right. Everything's closing. Well, at right. the start of Prohibition, like right. before it actually started. Right. So, just, right. so the year before. Correct. So in a word, it was surging between 19. 1920, various bourbons were busy winning whiskey tasting awards at various international exhibitions. Correct. I.W. Harper and Jack Daniels, just to name two, while American whiskeys like um, Old Fitzgerald, Cabin Still, and Kentucky Tavern uh, were introduced to the European market. Dozens of distilleries opened or expanded, including uh, Cascade, which made George A. Dickel, mm. and the Rippy Brothers, which would become the Wild Turkey Distillery. Sure. The soon-to-be most popular whiskey in America, Jack Daniels, was introduced as was the Lincoln County process, which charcoal filtered it to produce its distinctive flavor. Yep. By Prohibition start, there were nearly 3,000 distilleries in the United States, and Americans in total were drinking 140 million gallons of whiskey per year. Right. And yet, there were some bad omens, Ed. Oh, here it comes. Yeah. Tennessee enacted its own statewide prohibition on the sale of alcohol 10 years before the federal amendment was ratified. I mean, I'm just going to say this. I hate to interrupt you, but yeah. guys must have been acting like complete assholes if tennessee right right mm-hmm. on the edge of the south that is known for tennessee whiskey right got on board with this whole prohibition thing i don't know what they were doing back there i know how much of an asshole we can be now <laughs> all right i know quite a few guys that are huge assholes and so do all of you yeah by the way if you're one of them just stop you know who you are you know who you are yeah. just, just stop. if you can't listen like i got a friend he can only drink two scotches if he drinks a third scotch he's an asshole you know what his <laughs> wife said you're not allowed to have a third scotch mm. it's a good rule in their house yeah. he's on board with it <laughs> but evidently back in the 1920s people were not on board with it and they must have been just absolute assholes yeah and because but, of that scott where where were we right so um so not only did Tennessee enact its own statewide prohibition during World War One, a little remembered act of Congress called the Wartime Prohibition Act was passed ostensibly to save grain for the war effort. Right, they wanted the corn and the and the rye to make. I don't I don't know how they're shipping that to Europe, but what do I know? Right, but it, it was enacted for like a full year, I think, and then um, and strangest of all, Jack Daniels died in 1911 from blood poisoning, perhaps caused by an injury he suffered to one of his toes after he kicked a safe in anger because he couldn't open it. Wow. It's a story that's often told, uh, but it's apparently disputed in modern times, but it could be true. Once again, who knows? Who knows? And I also mentioned this, by the way, between 1970 and 1918, a completely unrelated thing. A million Americans died of the Spanish influenza. Can you imagine a million Americans dying in one year from the flu? Almost 25 million people died worldwide that year from that. So that's going on as a backdrop of all this. And don't think there wasn't some people saying that this is God punishing us because we're evil and we drink too much. So it does kind of make people look around for an answer. Yeah. I mean, look what happens today if there's a hurricane. Oh, it's because abortions. Oh, crap. I spilled whiskey everywhere. This is why there was prohibition. Exactly. (laughs) Because people were spilling whiskey on their laptop, (laughs) creating damage. No, everything's fine. We're good. Yeah, we're actually, yeah. Yeah. But what we do know is... 
Prohibition started. Yes. Um, so Prohibition starts. And what's interesting about it is it passes Congress a year early. So January 1919, it says, hey, everybody, a year from now, right. the ban's going to go in. Yeah. So a few things happened. The 36 states had ratified the amendment. A lot of them didn't think beer and wine would be included. Yeah. It wasn't until the Volstead Act, which is separate from the amendment, came out that set the parameters to 0.05% alcohol per volume as being what they called an intoxicating spirit. Right. So the amendment was saying, this is what's supposed to happen. Right. And then the Volstead Act was, this is how we enact it. Right. And so what does it mean, intoxicating beverages? A lot of people thought that that meant hard liquor. Yeah. It wasn't really spelled out. People were really upset about it because they felt like they had been hoodwinked. In that year, though, a lot of people <laughs> took steps to protect themselves because if you had bought the liquor before the January 16th, uh, 1920, <laughs> then you could serve it to your members. Mm. And so people were stockpiling. I mean, the Yale Club in Manhattan stockpiled enough liquor to keep their members drinking for 14 years. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I can't Christ. imagine. You kind of wonder how many members they had right. and how much they drank and how much liquor that actually was. Right. We've seen photos of wine cellars just stacked floor to ceiling with bottles. Yeah. Like you couldn't even walk in there. Yeah. And then there was exemptions everywhere. You could make wine at home and drink it. No one could stop you. Right, because the prohibition was against the sale of it, not the consumption of it. Right. Farmers were allowed to make hard cider still because they had to find some way to conserve their fruit. Yeah. Religiously, the amount that Catholic churches used quadrupled. Right. Um, oh, right in the uh, their uh, sacrament. Uh, right. And uh, during the Ken Burns documentary, one person was quoted as saying that 25% of it is uh, sacramental and the rest of it is sacrilegious. <laughs> and then they also talked about how every Jewish family was allowed to have a certain number of bottles of wine a month. So try to guess what happened because of that. <laughs> right. In one year, <laughs> the average in the cities, the congregations would raise from 80 families to 900 families. <laughs> But you had to have a note from your rabbi saying that you could have the wine. So, and look, the Catholic Church and the priests, it's really hard to figure out who's a rabbi. So you had a lot of rabbis coming out of nowhere. Right. Apparently, if you said you were a rabbi, no one was going to really question you on Right. Like, I mean, sure, the, the Jewish population knew that you were kind of a shady rabbi, but the state didn't know yeah. what a rabbi, what makes a rabbi. They weren't that versed on it. So you had a lot of rabbis who were uh, last name Kelly or O'Shaughnessy. <laughs> oh, it's Rabbi O'Shaughnessy. <laughs> ah. And they had black rabbis. And it was like, so, I mean, any loophole was being exploited. Black rabbis. And, you know, they only hired 1,500 prohibition agents for the entire nation. Yeah. One for every 70,000 plus people. And looking at a smaller microcosm, yeah. New York State, which has New York City, had 200 agents. And they have a border with Canada to worry about. And the city of New York, which, by the way, estimates figured out that they drank more liquor in New York City after Prohibition was passed than before it because yeah. everyone knows what you can't have becomes coveted. Yeah, the statistic that I saw was 15%. The big thing that happens during Prohibition, before we get into all the specific details, is that, all right, it's passed. Now, who's enforcing it? The states figured, well, the federal government passed it, let them enforce it. The federal government hoped that the states would all get behind it and pass their own state-level Prohibition, which they would enforce. Right. And some did, but Maryland passed no such prohibition, yeah. while Michigan, a third offense for possessing illegal alcohol was a life sentence. But my favorite thing is that our own home state of New Jersey, our governor stated that our state, his state, would remain as wet as the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> and like, 
Bully for you, Governor, whoever you were. And we'll look it up right uh, now. Yeah, I'm going to look it up. Um, so Ed- Edward I. Edwards. Edward I. Edwards. And I'm Edwards. So we'll the Edward I. Edwards I. Edwards. You are Edwards. I'm Edward. So Edward I. Edwards. I, you know what? I would not mind that name. If I... <laughs> If I had to be Edward I. Edwards, I, I think that's a pretty badass name. Yeah, and not redundant at all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Scott, can you go over some of the consequences of prohibition? Yeah, so I, I came across a bunch of unintended consequences uh, that came out of the law. So I'm calling it the law of unintended consequences, which I actually think is a thing. So hard liquor became more popular because more alcohol is packed into a smaller quantity of liquid right. than like wine or beer. So it was easier to hide. Right. Like if you're going to go out and you want to take a little something with you in the car, what are you going to take like a 12 pack in the back seat, or is it easier to take a flask? A little flask like, that you would yeah. hide like in your bootleg. That's why it's called a bootlegger. So people who would normally just have a few beers at the local saloon when it was legal were now consuming several cocktails made of substandard liquor that now was illegal. So consumption increased by some uh, 15%. Right. The second unintended consequences was that hard liquor became more socially acceptable because drinking moved from the sleazy saloons and gin mills that previously were like on every corner and they all moved into swanky secret speakeasies and nightclubs and the homes of the wealthy. So drinking took on a more sophisticated air something that people would aspire to. But of course, that wasn't the only place that you could get a drink. It was an open secret in Manhattan, for example, that you could get booze at your local deli, a shoeshine parlor, your barber shop, any delivery agency, your paint store, moving van companies, and even your taxi driver would sell you some whiskey if you asked discreetly enough. The bottom line is they drank more than before because it became something to do. Right. So the third unintended consequence was hard liquor became more deadly. Mm. So despite the fact that a few respectable distilleries remained open and were able to operate under so-called medicinal licenses. Most distillers were forced to close and sell their inventory to those who were still open. Therefore, some of the whiskey that was being distilled and consumed was a very low quality because people didn't know what the fuck they were doing. Right, so talk about that because there's three parts to the distillation process that the amateurs didn't understand. That's what made it dangerous and disgusting at the same time. Right, so a, a lot of people don't really know that when you distill uh, grains and there are three parts to that distillate. The beginning is called the head and it contains mm. high levels <laughs> i like that part who doesn't want some head on that you know <laughs> you actually don't so, amazingly no. I, the irony is you do not right with whiskeys can i tell you why because it has high concentration of methanol which is so poisonous in humans that just 10 milliliters can cause blindness and 30 milliliters is considered a lethal dose Jesus. so you don't want that no nah. the end uh called the tail you know what and normally i'd like a nice piece of tail yeah, yeah. Yeah, wouldn't you like who, no, who doesn't want a licensed piece of tail no, you right? don't but you think you do but you don't again uh, again you don't want it mm. because that often contains off-putting aromas and flavors yeah so that's not purities it's nasty exactly so it's the middle part that's the real part that you want to drink and the professional distillers know where to cut the head off and where to cut the tail and use the heart it's part of the art form of knowing how to be a distiller exactly so these guys didn't know what they were doing so whether they were unscrupulous ignorant or just flat out greedy they were using all parts of the distillate together combining it creating a dangerous concoction right. that people were literally dying to drink right. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, what's the big idea, Jimmy? Hey, fellas. Hey. <laughs> hey. 
<laughs> All right. So the fourth uh, unintended consequence was that drugs ended right. up becoming more socially acceptable. Yeah. If liquor is illegal, then it's the same as trying to get a bump of heroin or some cocaine and codeine syrups were big. Yeah, they were. The drugstores in general, because of the medicinal whiskey that they were all serving, people would go down also to these so-called tea houses mm-hmm. and they would smoke marijuana because that wasn't made illegal until 1937. Right. So there was, there was a few years there where you could just go down to your local shop and get some killer reefer get some killer watch the movie if you don't believe me (laughs) (laughs) so all of these things came out of this law that was intended to do the exact opposite right you know as a guy who likes history and who's been involved in history for most of my life as far as teaching it and learning it i always tell people that history is a tapestry everything that happens is interwoven you can't just look at it as fragmented events and perfect example is i would say without a doubt way more bad came from prohibition than good and even though the income tax came the government lost 11 billion dollars in revenue right it didn't nearly cover and it spent over 300 million a year i think to enforce it and that was the thing like 200 prohibition agents for new york city and 100 of them had to be fired after the first year because they took so many bribes that were coming to work in like (laughs) like you know cadillacs and fur coats on a salary that could never afford that and this leads to organized crime and of course everyone knows al capone al capone's a famous one from the time period yeah Yeah, there's probably a whole podcast on al capone sure you could literally do that he's an interesting figure hello and welcome to the al capone podcast (laughs) scott i'm al (laughs) (laughs) uh interesting fact here by the way so we brought up al capone he had an older brother who actually was a prohibition enforcement agent for the federal indian affairs administration on the winnebago and omaha tribes reservations in nebraska all right he changed his last name he's the oldest of the six capone brothers by the way Mm. And he changed his name to Richard Joseph Hart to hide his identity. I heard the other four brothers were in a boy band. Yeah, I think they were like the Bad Street Boys. (laughs) So um, if you're talking about bootleggers, though, George Remus from Chicago is my favorite. And here's why. He was a 20-year defense attorney. He's a very smart guy. When Prohibition hits, the whole loophole that he saw was that drug companies were going to be able to sell whiskey medicinally. And this is what Scott alluded to earlier. And so he is a pioneer in vertical integration. He called it the circle. And what the circle was, all those distilleries that couldn't sell had rickhouses full of whiskey. And so he went down the line and bought as many as he could. And he moved his operations to Cincinnati, Ohio. And within the 250-mile radius, he had about 80% of the distilled, barreled whiskey in America at his disposal. And his goal was to buy as much as possible and ship it to Cincinnati. And then when in Cincinnati, he formed a drug company that got a license to sell it legally. And he formed a trucking company to move it. And that's how the circle worked. And over the time of Prohibition, George Remus made $75 million bootlegging. And he's the king of it. And so his model has been used many times over by other companies. See Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) You order something Amazon, the truck shows up. It's got Amazon on it. The box is Amazon. It's in their warehouse. Yeah. And then you look around like they're actually putting it into your cabinet. They're like putting it away for you. you, Who are you? I'm from Amazon. I'm just putting it away in your pantry. Yeah. Well, I think uh, your discussion of George Remus and the medicinal whiskeys kind of leads us into the whiskey that we actually have. Right. Because one of the six distillers that were granted medicinal license is Brown Foreman. And Brown Foreman was the distiller of a whiskey that you have undoubtedly heard of. And that is Old Forester. Great distiller. The one that we chose appropriately, I think, 
is the Old Forester 1920 Prohibition style mm, of whiskey. It's delicious, by the way. Yeah. About $60 a bottle. It's worth it. It's high proof. Yeah, and the proof is significant. So from Old Forester's website, it says, the Volstead Act of 1920, which initiated prohibition in the United States... granted permits to six distillers in Kentucky to continue to bottle bourbon for medicinal purposes. Through one of these permits, Old Forester continued to be produced as a medicinal whiskey on Louisville's famed Whiskey Row. It is the only bourbon continuously sold by the same company that has been available for sale before, during, and after Prohibition. Now, episode one, we talked about Old Overholt being the longest consecutive rye whiskey. So, right. Old Forester's making the same claim with the bourbon side of the ledger, I guess. Yeah, I guess that is. Uh, during this time, all whiskeys had to be bottled at 100 proof. With a barrel entry proof of 100, the Angel Share would have created a 115 proof whiskey after maturation. To pay homage to this era, Old Forester presents 1920 Prohibition style bourbon at 115 proof to represent the rich flavor profile this bourbon had nearly 100 years ago. And it's actually spectacular. Got great complexity of flavor. So let's um let's taste this Old Forester yeah. 1920. Do you have some already in your glass? I do. I oh, have Yep. Gotta love corks. It just gets you excited. Oh, By the so way, most of the whiskey, just so you know, um, before we get into it, that was medicinal purposes during Prohibition was a pint. You're allowed to have one pint a week based on your prescription. Mm. And doctors wrote six million prescriptions <laughs> damn. for whiskey during Prohibition. I love it. That means six million people could have legal whiskey. But that also means six million pints a week. Right. Jesus. Let's clink that. Let's clink that. All right. Nice. Old Forester. Here we go. What do you smell? Wait, what do you smell? As you're drinking it, what do you smell? <laughs> oh, my God. I smell. Um, I have to tell you. I mean, Old Forester has a lot of different expressions, but this is my favorite by far. Caramel, vanilla. I don't know what the mash bill is of it, but it seems very peppery to me. I have the mash bill, actually. 72% corn. Wow, that high. 18% rye and 10% malted barley. See, I thought it was more like 25 rye. Oh, because of the spiciness? But you might be tasting the The proof proof of it. You're at full proof. Yep. Yeah, so from the website, they have uh, an intense medley of cherry preserves, drippy caramel, dark chocolate, thickened maple syrup, and seasoned oak spiciness. I get I get a little bit of maple syrup on the finish. I can see the cherry. This is just aroma. Well, I mean, the maple syrup, I, I'm tasting it on the finish. I, they can have the aroma wherever they want. Maybe I smell it after I drink it. I don't know what to tell you. Don't, <laughs> the, be, don't, right, be, okay. don't be a dick about it, before, so I can taste and smell whatever I want. <laughs> so the taste, they say, dark caramel coats layers of malt nuttiness yep. and sweet graham cracker. Oh, yes. Yep. Absolutely. All warmed by green peppercorn and coriander spice, brightened mm. with a hint of cedar. Mm, that's well, like- It's too- peppery. It is peppery. Hint of cedar, though? Nah, no, that's, yeah. that's the shit they put in there to sound yeah. like. Because if they don't, then it's like oh, vanilla, caramel, and toffee again. Right, right. You're, right. Gonna, You're getting violet. Right. I'm getting violet, <laughs> and I'm getting, oh, I taste um, baking spices and uh, orange uh, marmalade. <laughs> I taste uh, a little Lucy in the Sky with diamonds, and uh, I think it smells a little bit like Teen Spirit. <laughs> a little bit of mayonnaise, I get. <laughs> mayonnaise. I'm getting a little deviled egg on the palate. I'm, I'm getting a lot of churro. What do you think? Churro. <laughs> so the finish, they have tart apple Christmas. What? Tart apple crispness. Why can't it be just tart apple? Right. Gives way to a long, smoky finish full of toasted marshmallow. Mm. Chocolate and graham cracker sweetness. Now, I taste chocolate in a lot of things, yeah. but I've never tasted it in this. I have to tell you, I taste a lot of great things. There's such complexity to this sip of 
of the old Forrester 1920 Prohibition. I love it. I get like the creme brulee flavors, like the burnt sugar yes. and vanilla and stuff. Very, yes, very burnt sugar. Yeah. I'm right over that. That's where I get that. I honestly hate spending $60 for this, but it's so good. I will do it four times a year. I love it. Yeah. I love it. I really do. I love it too. It's one of my favorite bourbons, without a doubt. So two things interesting about this whiskey. It's the third in this their Whiskey Row series. Yes. So they have a 1910 old fine whiskey, they call it. Have you had that? I don't think I have. I haven't had Actually. It. And they have an 1897 bottled and bond, really? which I have had. And that's quite good. So let me ask you a question. The, the, the regular old Forester is just okay, right? It's just okay. And the regular Four Roses is just okay. It is. The regular Wild Turkey is just uh, okay. The regular Heaven Hill and the regular Henry McKenna's are just okay. So my point is, why do companies make their flagship brand just okay? I don't understand that. Like, why does it have to be to be 20? I understand that you can't have a 12-year bottle for $20. And I understand that they're appealing to the masses who don't want to spend $60 for a prohibition. You're right, though. It is interesting that they would name their own whiskeys after their lower base spirit. Yeah, like, why? Like, like if you're old Forrester, then make it your, hey, country morning whiskey for $20 right, or, and make your old Forester 40 Yeah, chicken cock. Yeah, like chicken cock. <laughs> I like what Jack Daniels did. Jack Daniels took their $24 bottle of Black Label and made it 30 Like, oh, we're as good as you. <laughs> like, if you, anyone noticed that, like look, Jack Daniels, which I, us. I drank a lot of when I was young. We're just like you. They just decided out of nowhere, hey, we're $30. Wait a minute. You were just $24 a bottle. I'm sorry. Regular Black Label Jack Daniels, it's a nice little bottle of booze. I've drank a lot of it in my life. I've talked about it. But it's good. It's not $32 a bottle. No, it's not. Get your ass back down to 25 and chill the fuck out. Yeah, I don't know. Now, if, if we ever become friends with distillers, uh, we, we could ask them that question. Yeah. So the second thing that was interesting about this whiskey is they spell whiskey with a Y and not an E-Y. Okay, the Scottish version then? The same thing that Maker's Mark does? Yeah. Yes. Why? Is there no history to that? I, I really don't know. All of their whiskeys like that? Yeah. All right, well, then that probably goes to their heritage because if their founders were from Scotland, then that's what happened with Maker's Mark, I believe. Yeah. They kind of give like a little nod to that spelling sure. of the motherland, if you will, of Ireland or Scotland or England or whatever. Right, and again, that's just a convention that can be used or not. It, it's not like a legal designation in the United States. Right. It's just a way to differentiate themselves Absolutely. from uh, Scotland. So I think we've covered a lot of what we wanted to cover during this time period. I think so. A lot of uh, unintended consequences, the growth of organized crime, millions of dollars being made illegally. Yeah, and it kind of backfiring. And really. the destruction, the actual decimation of American distilleries and, mm. and that whole industry. All those jobs, all that creativity, all that knowledge shattered. We'll never get them back. And it's taken almost 100 years for the whiskey industry to rebuild itself, to be the creative, powerful entity that Scott explained that it was in 1920. Right, right before Right before it was started. destroyed by Prohibition. And now mm. we see so much going on and a hundred years after the decimation of the industry, we finally see what I feel is a, a rebirth, if you will. The phoenix is rising for whiskey in America, and it's exciting for Scott and I to be part of that right now and be drinking whiskey and talking about whiskey, which is what we do on this podcast. Right. We said, I think, in the first or second episode we ever did that um, we are in a renaissance 
Absolutely. Of uh, just an explosion of whiskey. And as Ed said, we are uh, excited and happy to be in it. Stay tuned for part three of this uh, Prohibition whiskey where we talk about the end of Prohibition, how it all falls uh, apart. Yeah. Because frankly, I feel like there was a perfect storm to create it. There was also a perfect storm to end it. All right. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Ed. I'm Scott. This is the Whiskey Tangent Podcast. Whiskey Mentor, you're supposed to say. Oh, Whiskey Mentory. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going back to New Orleans for my